appreciate the message this morning. Brother Tim was brought to our attention. As he stated, most everyone will certainly tell you they believe in the Trinity. But the unity of the Trinity is what's important. To know that they're of one mind, one accord, one purpose. The good pleasure of one is the good pleasure of the other. They never contradict. They always harmonize or are together. So I appreciate that uh, very important point. Uh, I'd like to speak to you in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning verse 1, it says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did they all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink and they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He begins this by saying, I would not have you that you should be ignorant. Paul greatly desired for the Lord's people to be instructed. He greatly desired for them to have biblical knowledge. He greatly desired for them to be enlightened concerning the truth of God's word. So this is an expression he uses several times in his writings. Romans 10, for example, he said, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is they might be saved, for I bear them record. They have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness' sake to everyone that believeth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is going to give a list of spiritual gifts. And again, he said, I'm not have you ignorant concerning these spiritual gifts that God has given to the church. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13, where he said, I'm not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are asleep in Christ, that you sorrow not, even those others which have no hope. Romans 11 and 25, Paul is teaching us in this 11th chapter of Romans how that the Lord judged the Jews and brought the Gentiles into the gospel fold. And he said, I will not have you ignorant concerning this mystery. 2 Corinthians 1 and 8, Paul said, I will not have you ignorant, brother, concerning the trouble that we experienced or encountered when we were in Asia. That's five. And then the woman we have before us is six different times we find where Paul did not want God's people ignorant on certain subjects. Now here he says, I will not have you ignorant, brother, concerning... Uh, that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. Now he's going to give a reference here to probably the most memorable event in Israel's history. And you find this course given to us in great detail in the book of Exodus. It's what the word Exodus means. It means exit. And God is going to bring his children, his entire nation of his people, out of the land of Egypt by his power with not one left behind. So Paul's referring to that. Now all the way through the scriptures, after that event's recorded for us in Exodus, you'll find God referring to that time and time again throughout his word. So here Paul now is writing about it hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after the event took place. He says, now I don't want you ignorant about this event that took place, and we're going to see some reasons why here. He says, all of our fathers, he's talking about the patriarchs, uh, you know, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and how the nation of Israel was formed and developed down in the land of Egypt. 
and the testimony they had uh, during that period of time. He wants us to be enlightened about this. So he says they were all under the cloud. He's talking about that pillar of cloud that God gave them, that miraculous pillar uh, that guided them and protected them. That pillar uh, gave them shade in the daytime. At nighttime, it was a pillar of fire to give them warmth, but also to uh, keep the predators away, the wild animals away. That's one of the best things you can have is a fire to keep, uh, you know, wildlife away from you if you're in the wilderness, in the woods or whatever. So he says they were under the cloud and they passed through the sea. And then he says they were all baptized unto Moses in the sea, in the cloud and in the sea. Now what does it mean being baptized unto Moses? Now he's not talking about water baptism here, okay? No one was baptized as we're familiar with baptism, water baptism until John the Baptist came along. Well, the children of Israel, they passed through the sea. There was two great walls of water, one on each side. As God sent a strong east wind that blew upon the Red Sea, and the sea divided, and two great walls of water were on each side of them, much higher than they were. And they were under the cloud. I hope you can see the picture here. They're covered above and on the sides here. And then they're delivered through the Red Sea to the other side. Now, in Romans 6 and 5, Paul says that we are baptized into Jesus Christ. He said we might rise to walk in newness of life. Now, baptism, water baptism, is symbolic of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when a child of God hears the wonderful gospel of grace, believes he's embraced in that doctrine, that great truth, that God indeed foreknew you as an individual. He foreknew his people. He foreknew personally and individually and chose you personally and individually, died for you personally and individually, born you of the Spirit of God sometime in your past, and has given you the hope within your hearts that one day you were to part this life to be with the Lord in glory, you ought to make a profession of faith. You ought to acknowledge that in a public way. Say, I believe that the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is my salvation. Nothing I have done to add to it, nothing I can do to take away from it, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is what has secured my salvation, pure and simple. You make your profession of faith. And then you're taken by the preacher and you're baptized. You're placed beneath the water. And that's a picture of burial. And then the preacher brings you back up. And I, I've never left one down. I've always got them back up, all right? I've had to double dip a couple, but I got them back up, all right? And what does that show? It shows that you desire to walk in newness of life. You want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. You want to abide by his teachings. You want to learn his teachings, learn his word, and make application of that word in your life to walk in the footsteps of the Son of God. That's what baptism is, discipleship's all about. And the children of Israel was going to enter into a new way of life, were they not? They were delivered from the bondage and the captivity of Egypt. Now, when you're studying Israel's history, there's three uh, geographical pictures that you need to always understand. There's the area of Egypt over here. Here's Canaan over here. And between Egypt and Canaan is the wilderness. Now, the scriptures always teach us that Egypt is a picture of bondage and captivity, darkness and worldliness. The wilderness is a place where you're homeless. Who wants to build a house in the wilderness? Who would build a house in the wilderness? Well, no one would. It's, 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 not, it's not what it's, 
it's not where you would go to do that. And then the land of Canaan over here is a picture in general of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, his true church here in this world. The land of Canaan was a land that was a promised land. God promised this land to his people, the nation of Israel. It was a land that flowed with milk and honey. It was a land very rich, fertile. When the spies came back from that land, they brought grapes that were so large, the clusters so large that they had to uh, bring it back out of their own staves. Two men had, had to tote clusters of grapes out of that land. Uh, a land that flowed with milk and honey, a land of hills and valleys. It would be a land of battles, there would be skirmishes, there would be difficulties, challenges, etc. But God promised to fight their battles for them, to go before them. And if they were willing and obedient, they would eat the good of the land, but if they refused and bailed, they'd be devoured by the sword. And we're going to notice here, as they were baptized under Moses, that means Moses was their uh, authority. They were baptized under the authority of Moses. Moses was God's appointed man to bring Israel out of the, uh, of the land of Egypt, out of bondage and captivity. And so he led them out of there. By the power of God, he led them out of there. They came out under the cloud, through the sea, baptized unto him in the cloud and in the sea, and they reached the other side. Now they begin their wilderness journey. Now Moses had lived in the wilderness himself for 40 years. Remember, his life's divided into three 40-year periods of time. First 40 spent in Egypt. Second 40 spent in the wilderness. The third 40 he spent uh, going back to Egypt and bringing God's people out of there. He lived to be 120. So the middle part of his life, from 40 to 80, we find where Moses knew what wilderness experience was all about. Now he kept sheep. He was a shepherd. He was able to provide for him and his family in this manner, in this way. But now we're talking about providing for plus two million people. By a conservative estimate, about two million or so Israelites came out to the land of Egypt. I want you to get that in your head. About two million plus came out of the land of Egypt. Not one was left behind. Now this is a picture, should be to you, of the truth of the preservation of the saints of God. When Jesus Christ died on Calvary, he shed his blood for the elect family of God. He shed his blood for his family, for his children, his bride. He died for them. He saved them from their sins without the loss of one. Not one drop of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ was shed in vain. The theology of the world says that Christ died for everybody, but everybody's not going to be in heaven. That least somebody shed his blood for that was in vain. Does that make sense to you, just to think about it? Even without biblical explanation, which I give you plenty of, uh, does that make sense to you? As we read the opening verses of Jude, it says we're sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. The Lord's people are preserved people. John chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm the good shepherd of the sheep. I know my sheep. They hear my voice. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No man can pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all the man can pluck them out of my Father's hand. For I and the Father are one. There is the unity of the Godhead, of the Trinity. He says, no man can pluck them out of my hand. They're in my hand. No man can pluck them out of there. He says, they shall never perish. That's what we call eternal security. For all whom the Father foreknew, the, the Savior died for, and all whom the Savior died for, the Holy Spirit will quicken and make alive in Christ sometime between their conception and death. Again, the beautiful unity of the Trinity here. 
So when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, not one was left behind. Not one. The entire nation that was formed and developed down the land of Egypt was brought out of there, delivered through the Red Sea to the other side into the wilderness. Now, the Lord told Moses, when you bring my people out of here, you bring them to Mount Sinai, and there you will worship me. Now, between their deliverance across the Red Sea to Mount Sinai, it's going to be a several-day journey. And whatever food they brought out of there with them, they, they're going to consume it pretty quickly. Two million people going to consume it pretty quickly. What are they going to eat? How are they going to survive until they get to Mount Sinai? Now, I want to just go down here just a little bit because there's five things that kept many of the Israelites from getting into the land of Canaan. Now, notice the word all. The word all is used five times in the beginning of this chapter. All our forefathers were under the cloud. All our forefathers passed through the sea. They were all baptized under Moses in the sea, in the cloud and in the sea. They did all eat of that same spiritual meat. They did all drink of that spiritual drink. The word all is used five times here. And that... And they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. Now here we have Christ referred to as being, you know, active over here in the Old Testament before he ever left heaven's pure world and came down here and born to the Virgin Mary. But then it says, but with many of them, God was not well pleased. Now we're going to go from many, from all to many. He's going to give us five reasons why he was not pleased with them. The first one is the fact that they lusted. They were not satisfied with what God gave them. They wanted something beyond, besides what God gave them. And then they were guilty of idolatry. Then they were guilty of fornication. Then they were guilty about mur murmuring against God and they were guilty of tempting God. And then Paul says these things happened to them for in samples. Now, an in-sample is an example, but it's an example with great force. That's the difference between an in-sample and an example. These things happened unto them for our in-sample and was written for our admonition that we should not lust after things as they lusted for and fall as they fell. Then it comes to this verse, Let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. He's warning the Corinthians, just like they fall, fell, you can fall. Now, the five sins that were committed that caused many of them for God to be displeased with, that kept them out of the land of Canaan, still exist today. God's people can be involved in these sins today. Now, you can trace each one of these sins he mentioned to the Old Testament Scripture. Now, let me just pass this along to you. For you to get the impact of this lesson, you must read the Old Testament. The references will be given to you where these, these examples are given that I've just gave you. These five sins are clearly defined and we have an illustrated in the Old Testament. So if you're just a New Testament reader and you read this, it's not going to really benefit you that much. You need to go and study these. You go to Numbers chapter 11. In fact, you can find four of these five in the book of Numbers and one in the book of Exodus. You go to Numbers chapter 11. It says, in the mixed multitude... It says, when they came out of there, began to lust. And they said, give us meat to eat. It says, our souls are dried up. Give us meat to eat. Rather than this, what is, over this is, he was talking about the manna that God had given them. 
Now it says a mixed multitude tells me that when Israel came out of the land of Egypt, there were some connected with Israel that were not true Israelites. So this lusting that they were guilty of, the charge was led by the mixed multitude. That'll always happen to you. That's why you need to be very careful of the company you keep. Especially the young folks, I'm telling you, be careful of the company you keep. Choose your friends wisely and carefully. This mixed multitude led the charge of lusting that caused many of the Israelites to be slain. Every one of these sins caused many people to die because God's judgment came upon them. Then there was the idolatry. Exodus chapter 32, the well-known case of idolatry. This isn't the only example we can give, but perhaps the most well-known. And this is when Moses went up to the top of the mountain and the people thought he delayed in coming down. They said, let us make gods. God, the all-eternal, omnipotent God, had led them out of there. They saw the ten plagues. Let us make us gods. And while he was away, Aaron took the golden earrings and things, and he made a golden calf. And when Moses came down the mountain and called him on the carpet for it, he said, well, you know how the people are. You see, he's picking this up from his forefathers, Adam and Eve. Oh, you know how the people are. They just gave me this. I put it in the fire, and a golden calf came out of it. Uh, you know, that's about the most feeble explanation you're ever going to read in the Word of God where somebody is trying <laughs> to excuse themselves. And they had fallen down, and they were dancing, eating, drinking, and dancing around that golden calf. That's unbelievable, is it not? But it happened. There's your idolatry. Many were slain as a result of that idolatry. And then the fornication. We find in Numbers chapter 25 where it says, And the children of Israel joined themselves unto the daughters of Moab. God made it very plain after delivering his children out of the land of Egypt, they were not to mix and mingle. They were not to intermarry with the nations they would come in contact with. And that's exactly what they did. And they joined themselves to Baal Peor, which is an idol god. There's your idolatry. And then the murmuring. All you got to do is go to Numbers chapter 14 for this. And this is falling right in the context where 12 spies went to the land of Canaan. They spied out in the land for 40 days. They came back. Ten spies said, we saw giants in the land, and we are not able to take it. Joshua and Caleb, two spies, said, we be well able to take it. But the people listened to the report of the ten, and they murmured against Moses. And murmuring against Moses, they murmured against God. God was very displeased with this and put a judgment upon them. And that judgment was everybody from 20 years old and older among the Israelites in that day would not get into Canaan's land. They would perish in that 40-year trial in the wilderness. Only those under 20 years of age and those born in the wilderness journey would enter into the land of Canaan. And you know what they had said prior to that? said, you brought us and our children out here to perish. Their children made it. The adults didn't. He gave them one year for every day. And then the temptation. You find this in Numbers 21. This is when the children of Israel again complained and murmured against God and against, uh, against Moses because they had entered into battle with some of the Moabites. And God was so displeased, he sent fiery serpents among them, and the fiery serpents bit them. And all were bitten of the fiery serpents, they died. And when they cried out to God, this is when God had Moses to make a brazen serpent, put it on a pole and held it up and brought about a deliverance. 
but many, oftentimes thousands of Israelites died as a result of each one of these five sins. And it says these things happened to them for in samples for us and were written for our admonition that we likewise fall as they fell. Therefore let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. By the time you think you've got it made, you're just getting ready to take a tumble. When you begin to see yourself standing in your own power, in your own intellect, walking along based upon your own strength, it's not going to be long and you're going to be tumbling down the hill. Let him that thinketh he stand and take heed, lest he fall. Now, let's back up here. All our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. All, not many, but all. And we're all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, not many, but all. They did all eat of that same spiritual meat, not many, but all. They did all drink of that same spiritual drink, not many, but all. But then it changes. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. And here's the five reasons why. Now, I want to focus on my time here this morning on the expression, they all did eat of that same spiritual meat, okay? Now, we notice it's spiritual meat, it's spiritual drink, and a spiritual rock. Now, the meat's under consideration is going to be this manna. Now, literally speaking, it was not spiritual. It was literal. It was physical. It was something you could hold on to, something you could see, right? So why is it called spiritual? Because it came from God, who is a spirit. In John chapter 4, when the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking to the Samaritan woman there at Jacob's well, we find where he tells her that the hour is coming when the true worshiper of God, he says, must worship him in spirit and in truth, for God seeketh such to worship him. For God is a spirit. God is a spirit. Now, throughout the word of God, God reveals himself to us in human form. The Bible speaks about the eyes of God, the ears of God, the heart of God, the hands of God, and the feet of God, and the, the nose and the smell of God, and the, and the taste of God. Therefore, we can relate to those things, can we not? Isn't he so kind and gracious to us to reveal himself to us in a way that we can relate to? You know, when I read about the eyes of God, I've got eyes to see, but when I read about God's eyes, I see his eyes represent his omniscience. He sees all and knows all. When I think about my hands and the labor of my hands, the strength of my, uh, my body in my hands, I know I have limitations, but I'm thankful to God when I read about his hands. I'm talking about hands, my friends, will never, uh, will never drop you, and nobody can take you out of those hands. When I think about the ears of God, how he hears all things, you know, what a blessing it is to hear, right? But also what a blessing it is not to hear some things. <laughs> For there's nothing that God doesn't hear and God doesn't see. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. He's omnipotent. God reveals himself in his word in human form so that we can comprehend and relate better to the lessons that he teaches us. But in reality, God is a spirit. That's what Jesus said in John 4. The hour's coming future. He says, and you see, the Samaritans thought true worship occurred there in Samaria, the mountain of Samaria. The Jews thought true worship occurred only in Jerusalem. He says, the hour's come, the day's coming, the hour's coming, the future, which ye shall neither worship me in that mountain or here at Jerusalem, but God is a spirit and seeketh such to worship him in spirit and also in truth. 
That's the two vital things for true worship, spirit, truth. So they did all eat that same spiritual meat. They all drank that same spiritual drink. And they drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ. Now in the Old Testament, God is referred oftentimes as a rock. And I'm not talking about a pebble. I'm not talking about a rock you can pick up your hand and sling. I'm talking about a rock, a boulder, a huge rock that you cannot move by, move by human strength. Deuteronomy 32.4, for he is a rock. His work is perfect. A God of truth without iniquity. We read this in Isaiah 32, one of my favorite passages. He said, a king shall reign in righteousness, a prince shall rule in judgment, and a man shall be as a hiding place in winds, a cover from the tempest, as rivers of water, and a dry place, as a shadow of a great rock. In a weary land. What were the sisters on the when they was going to come to the sepulchre of the Lord Jesus Christ? What was one of their concerns? And I'm, I'm Lord willing, I want to preach on the questions sometime here in the near future. Questions in the Bible that people have that show they're basing their their question upon human understanding and don't see the power of God. Here's one of them. I mean, I don't blame them. They said, "Who's going to roll the stone away?" Because they had witnessed when Christ was placed into that barred tomb into the sepulcher there that Herod or Pilate had given the commandment to those uh, Pharisees and them to roll a stone before the opening of this sepulcher and to place soldiers there to be sure his disciples didn't come and steal his body away. They said, who's going to roll the stone away? But this question didn't have so much doubt in it that they still didn't go to the sepulcher. They showed up. And lo and behold, when they showed up, the Lord has sent an angel who rolled the stone away. Have you ever had a few stones rolled away in your lifetime, in your experience? I trust that you have. The Lord has rolled a lot of stones away from me. If he hadn't rolled the stone away, I wouldn't have been able to have done what I did. I just had to put my dependence and trust in him. So this spiritual meat, spiritual drink, because it comes from God right out of heaven, who is a spirit. When we talk about the gifts in the church, they're called spiritual gifts. Because the Lord has placed his spirit within inside of us. We must worship God in spirit and also in truth. So what was that spiritual meat? You go back here to Exodus chapter 16, also Numbers chapter 11 for a couple of references. And you're going to find out when the people murmured against God. Now God said, I will reign. And notice this to show the mercy of God. Notice this. He did not say, I'll rain down fire and brimstone in terms of my judgment and just consume them. No, he didn't do that. He says, I will rain down manna from on high. And when you find that word in the Bible, I will rain down, that means there's going to be a plentiful supply. Just like it was when God rained down from heaven for 40 days in the flood, a lot of rain came down. i tell you that right now. You know... <laughs> I'm, I'm just thankful that uh, God, when he, God sends the rain, God can also stop the rain. Like Will Rogers one time was outside uh, uh, with this man in this place, and it was just raining, as they say, cats and dogs. And the man says, will it ever stop raining? And Will Rogers said, it always has. Always has. But sometimes God specifies the period of time that's going to rain just like he did in, in the, with the flood. He said it'll rain 40 days and 40 nights. It didn't stop raining after 39 days. It didn't keep raining 41 days. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and then it stopped, you see. So God rained down manna. 
Now, we, a lot of times preachers preach what they call types and shadows. We talk about topology. We're talking about something in the Old Testament that reminds us of the Lord Jesus Christ over here. A lot of times it's people, sometimes it's things. And I don't know of anything hardly in the Old Testament reminds me of the Lord Jesus Christ any more than this manna that came down, that God rained down for the benefit of his people. Now I want you to think about something. Moses knew the hardships of wilderness living, as I've already stated. He knew what it would take to maintain a people, for a people to eat. There's two million people plus conservative estimate of Israelites that come out of the land of Egypt. God's going to feed them with manna. He's going to tell them how much manna each person is to take, an omer per man. Some gathered much, some gathered little. An omer was six pints. That means that God rained down 12 million pints of manna every day. If it was exactly 2 million, God would rain down 12 million pints of manna every day. This manna, if you calculate this just right, you have 10 trains with 30 cars per train, so that's 300 cars, all filled with 15 tons of manna. Every day, not one time. We're talking about every single day, God rained down more than 2 million pints of this manna from heaven. This manna was prepared of God. It's something the Israelites had never seen before, never tasted before. They said, what is this manna? And that's what the word literally manna means. It means, what is this? There was something mystical about this manna, just like it was with the Lord Jesus Christ when he came down from heaven, didn't he? There's something different about him. After that first uh, episode on sea, that first storm recorded in Matthew chapter 8, when the Lord safely delivered them out of that storm, he was asleep in that ship and he calmed the storm. You know what they said about him? What manner of man is this? Even the winds and the seas obey his voice. When they came to get the Lord Jesus Christ, in John chapter 7, they there have been those that the Pharisees sent to get Christ and bring him back. They came back without Christ. They want to know why didn't you bring him back? You know what they said about him? They said, never man spake like this man spake. Something mystical about this man. This is not an ordinary man. This is something not ordinary. They'd never tasted manna before. They'd never seen manna before. And they didn't ask for this manna. God sent this manna to them. It was prepared of God, just like the Lord Jesus Christ was prepared of God to come into this world. This manna will, should remind you of the written word of God and also the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where was the Bible prepared? God used human beings, God used human writers to write the word of God. Over 40-some writers appeared in 1,500 years, pinned down the scriptures by the divine inspiration, but I'm telling you, they were inspired by God above. God's the author of this entire word. God's the author of the Bible. He just used human writers to pin it down for him, you see. It wasn't prepared by man. Man didn't even ask for it. These Israelites didn't ask for it. It wasn't prepared for them. God sent it down. God prepared it, and he sent it down from heaven. Where did the Lord Jesus Christ come from? John 6, 38 and 39, Jesus said, For I came down from heaven, not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will. All he hath given me, I shall lose nothing. Raise up again to the last day. Numerous references in the four Gospels where we could go to where Christ spoke about coming down from heaven, coming down from above. 
This manna was prepared of God just like the Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 10, 5, we find where he's quoting from the 40th Psalm where he says, A body thou hast prepared me. And that word prepared there means to be fitted. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ looked like any other physical body walking here in time from the standpoint of, of a head and arms and uh, uh, legs and feet and fingers and eyes and all of that. But at the same time, it was a sinless body. That body had no sin in it. It was prepared of God. It was fitted by God to live here in this world. The Son of God, the Word, capital W-O-R-D, the second person of the Godhead, left heaven, came here in this world, but he had to come in a body that was made, prepared, and fitted for him. This manna was prepared of God, came down from heaven, and when it came down from heaven, it fell upon the dew. It didn't fall upon the dust. What, what is man? You want me to define what man is? Man is dust. I just define who you are and I am. Dust. The Lord said, dust thou art and dust thou shalt return. When the Lord Jesus Christ came down from heaven, he came down here to dwell among dust, among, among people. That manna, when it came down, it came down upon the dew. That dew separated the manna from the dust of this earth right here. And the Lord Jesus Christ was separate from sinners. Now he ate with sinners. He touched sinners. He interacted with sinners. He mingled with sinners. But the Lord Jesus Christ was not a sinner. The Lord Jesus Christ was separate from sinners, you see. He was holy, harmless, undefiled, and separate from sinners. This manna was small. It was round. It was white. It was sweet. From the standpoint of it being small, Isaiah 53, I think, will give us a picture of this. In Isaiah 53, it starts off like this. Lord, who hath believed our report? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Two questions. Question two answers question one. He says, he shall grow up as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. Anything impressive about that? He shall grow up as a, uh, you know, he shall be as a root out of dry ground without form, without comeliness that we should desire him. And the word comeliness means splendor or majesty. He said, there'll be no splendor about this man. There'll be no majesty about this man. It's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? The Son of God who created the world, spoke this world into existence. The Son of God who never sinned. The Son of God who manifested his omnipotence, his omnipresence, his omniscience here for 33 and a half years. That There was no splendor nor majesty about him. When people saw him in a crowd, unless God pointed him out and revealed him for whatever reason, as he did from time to time, they just saw another Jewish man walking along with everybody else. Small. Most people aren't too impressed with small things. Try to start your car without a key. That car's a big old thing, isn't it? Won't go nowhere without that fob, without that key. That key's pretty small, isn't it? One of the smallest things about the car. Try driving it without one. You won't get very far. It was small. It was uh, round. It was circular. It didn't have any rough edges to it. It was round. It was circular. And I trust you already understand that's a picture of the eternality of the Lord Jesus Christ from, being, from everlasting to everlasting. You know, Moses is considered to be the human writer of Psalms 90. He said, before you ever formed the earth or brought the mountains forth and the hills thereof, the ark from everlasting to everlasting. 
And the word everlasting there means vanishing point. You're from vanishing point to vanishing point. You cannot look this way. Uh, you know, you look as far as you want to, you'll never see the origin of God. You look as far as you want to this way, you'll never see the end of God because he doesn't have an origin. He don't have an end. This ring on my finger that has rarely come off in 55 years, rarely come off in 55 years and just had a purpose if it did, there's no apparent beginning place, no apparent ending place. Circular. It also, I think, that points to the very perfections of the graces of the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.17, he says, Now unto the King eternal. If you are talking about eternal life, everlasting life, you've got to have an eternal God and an everlasting God to get eternal life or everlasting life. Do you not? This manna was round, Circular, pointing to that, it was small, it was white. White is always a picture of purity in the Word of God. God's Word is pure, and the Lord Jesus Christ is pure. I want to make a point about that in just a second, but let's take a look at the Word of God. Hebrews, excuse me, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, and uh, you're going to find where Solomon says, Every word of the Lord is pure. Psalms 12, 6, and 7 says, The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in the furnace of the earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them this generation forever. That means the Lord will not only keep the words, the Lord will keep the pureness of the words. He will not allow any corruption to come into his word. He will not allow anything that's false, anything that's wrong, any error to creep into his word. Now, here's my question for you. I don't think anybody who's reasonably minded would deny the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ lived a pure life here in this world, a sinless life, in other words. Right? The living word, the Lord Jesus Christ. Look in uh, Hebrews 4, 14 and 15. Paul says, For seeing we have a high priest which can, uh, we have not a high priest which cannot be touched the feelings of our infirmities, yet in all points is tempted like as we are yet without sin. No sin in Christ. Never sin in thought. Never sin in word. Never sin in uh, by omission or commission, he lived the perfect, sinless, holy, righteous life here in this world. And because of that, and he represented you and me, represented all the elect family of God, God can see you in the same way as he sees him through his son, Jesus Christ. That's shouting ground, if you, uh, if you allow me to say that this morning. Okay? Pure. Now, why would God allow corruption to come in his pure word when that word is talking about the purity of the living word? That doesn't make any sense to me. You don't think God has the power to keep his word incorruptible? You know he does. If God cannot keep his word incorruptible, keep his word from having error to enter into it, what hope do I have of the resurrection? What hope do I have of one day coming out of the grave? That's based upon the promise of God, upon the word of God, is it not? I'm telling you, we have the pure word in the King James translation preserved, I believe, by the providence of God, and we've had it for over 400 and some years here. It's reliable, it's trustworthy. You may have to do a little Bible study, a little word study from time to time, work a little, you know, in figuring things out, but I'm telling you, it is wonderful, it is rich, it's beneficial, it's profitable, it'll guide God's people, and it always has, and it always will. That Manna was sweet to the taste. I love the hymn John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. 
We sing about eight or ten, at least eight or ten of his hymns, but that's the one we always think about. I like this one. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. How sweet, why does that sound, why does that name sound so sweet? When I think of Jesus, I think of everlasting love. When I think of Jesus, I think about his vicarious death. When I think of Jesus, I think about uh, uh, his uh, love for me. When I think of Jesus, I think about this promises he's made to me that he will never leave me nor forsake me. He never has. There's this Scottish preacher went to visit one of the elderly members of the church, one of the sisters in the church. And when he got to her house, she handed him her Bible and says, I want you to read a certain passage of scripture for me. So the pastor opened it up to where she wanted to, and he, he read the passage to her. And he noticed beside the passage was the letters PT. He says, what's the PT for? She said, if you read my Bible, go through my Bible, you'll find every time God makes a promise, I got a PT beside it. The PT, the P stands for proven, the T stands for tried. Proven and tried. Her experience had taught her a long life journey that the word of God had been proven in her experience and tried by her experience and she knew it was true by her experience. <laughs> you want to make a preacher happy? Ask him a Bible question. <laughs> you want to pre make a preacher happy? When he comes to see you, say, here's the Bible. I want you to read me something out of the word of God. Nothing he likes any better than that. I've told this before, but I just, it just come to my mind right now. Uh, Sister Ellen, Sister Pam, neighbors, his mother, back before she passed away a few years ago, I went to see her, and she had, uh, you know, dementia, Alzheimer's, real, real, real bad. And, and I went in, and, and she was just talking a mile a minute, mile a minute. I mean, I, I thought, well, I'll never get a word in. But finally, she had to take a breath. <laughs> I mean, this went on for a while. Finally, she had to take a breath. I said, Sister Ellen, let's pray. And she stopped talking. She stopped talking. And she closed her eyes and bowed her head. In that state of dementia that she had, that was being uh, reflected in what I just said, when I said, let us pray, it penetrated. When I said, let's pray, it entered into her heart, her mind. She understood what I was saying. And she stopped. She didn't say another word bowed her head, closed her eyes, and we had prayer. And when I left the room, she was still silent. Proven and tried, right? This manna was sweet to the taste of those Israelites. It was God-given, and God would give it every single day, more than two million pints every single day for 40 years. Now this reminds me of a couple important verses in Philippians chapter 4. One we say a lot, Philippians 4 and 13. We can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us, right? But I want to move on down to verse 19. Another wonderful one here. God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Jesus Christ. Whatever your need is, God can supply it. He's promised to supply it. Those Israelites were going to need food to eat for 40 years, and God gave them what they stood in need of. He gave them the nourishment they needed. He gave them the strength they needed. He gave them everything they needed, my friends, and yet they were so unappreciative of it. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life. This, this manna was bread. And he was the, he's the bread of life. At least five times in John chapter 6, you'll find where Jesus says, I'm the living bread. I'm the bread that came down from heaven, not as this manna which your fathers eat, and they died. That manna in the old wilderness was not intended to keep them alive forever, but to give them the strength they needed to make the journey to get to the land of Canaan. Now I'm telling you the written word of God, which is about the living word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives me strength on a daily basis. I want you to notice how they had to gather this. The manna came down and fell upon the dew, and it fell right, it came to where the people were at. They didn't have to travel a mile or three miles or five miles to go find it and get it. It came right where the people was at, and it surrounded the tent in which they lived. All they had to do was walk out the door, and there it was. Each morning I get up, all I got to do is get my cup of coffee, and, and here it is. It kind of goes together. Pretty good combination. <laughs> I want to be waking up to know what I'm reading. <laughs> now, when they walked out the door, they could do, do one of two things. They can gather it like the Lord told them to, or they could, could neglect it and walk on top of it. They had to do one of the two. It was right there. Either gather it or walk on top of it. Now, you know how they had to gather it? They didn't walk off and gather it off the trees. They had to bow down. They had to go down. They had to bow down. They had to go down. <laughs> no wonder David said in the Psalms, Open thou mine eyes, I might hold wondrous things out of thy law. They had to bow down. That's a position and posture, my friends, of why we need to be in our hearts when it comes to praying to the Lord and asking God for understanding, asking God for enlightenment. Open thou mine eyes. I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. And so are we bowing down? Are we gathering it up? It said they were together an omer per man. He says, you gather it every single day. What God gave them one day would not be sufficient for the next day. If they gathered more than they were supposed to gather, thinking, well, I'll just gather two omers and I can just sit at home. I won't have to get out and go. You know what happened? It perished. It, God didn't allow it to remain suitable and eatable for the second day. He meant what he said. They said on day number six, you're to gather twice as much because day number seven, you're not to go out and get it. And there was people who didn't gather twice as much. They thought, I'll just get my normal amount. I'll just go out tomorrow and get it. They went out there. Wasn't there. <laughs> Every single day, the Lord's people need to gather this manna, this, this truth of God's word. And they need to meditate upon it, which is, you know, just like eating when you, you know, the most delightful dish in all the world as far as appearance and taste won't do you a bit of good if you don't put it in your mouth and eat it. You got to put it in, you got to chew it, you got to eat it. If it's going to do your body any good, if it's going to give your body nourishment and strength, you've got to eat it, you got to chew it, you got to digest it, and then it goes to the various parts of your body through the bloodstream and gives you what it was intended for. And so it is with God's Word, my friends. You need to take it and you need to meditate upon it. That's the same thing. Meditation is a lost art. <laughs> You know, to meditate on something, you've got to have something in here to meditate on. Right? <laughs> and a lot of people 
That's not putting much to meditate on, I tell you that. I've seen people texting each other in the elevator. Sam aside, they forgot how to talk. Side by side, I, I know based on my observation, they were texting each other side by side in the elevator. I close with this verse here in Psalms 1. Who's the blessed man? Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor walk in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delights in the law of God, in it doth he meditate day and night. The meditating man is